Heavenly Father, we are here today to meet with you and to somehow, by your grace and, and through the act of worship, corporate worship around your word and around songs, Father, that we encounter the living God in a way that isn't possible outside of those contexts. And today, as we get to the absolute height of the Christ hymn in Colossians, Father, I'm, I'm praying and I'm hoping and I'm seeking you and pleading with you for you to, by your grace, Lord, open our eyes to see the splendor and the majesty of your might, to see your beauty as it really is. And I pray, Father, that we wouldn't just see it in its supremacy, though that is enough, that we wouldn't just see it as you reign over all things, though that would be sufficient, Father, but that we would see it in the majesty and the meekness of Christ Jesus, in the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, if we could see that, if you would show your love to us in that way today, we would be so thankful. I pray that you would in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is the day. Um, and I'm not talking explicitly about the Super Bowl. Um, today is the day. It's our last day in the Christ hymn. So the Christ hymn is a passage in Colossians, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We have been here for a, a little while now, soaking this up. And uh, we actually, this will be the last week that we're here. And then we're going to be pressing into new territory, and we'll be moving a little bit quicker through the rest of Colossians, actually, just because of the nature of uh, this letter. And so if you've been here for the last four weeks, you know how we've been handling and engaging this passage. Normally I get up here, I read a text, and we uh, walk through it, but we've been reading it together as a liturgy because this is the Christ hymn. Um, we've been honoring the text by reading it as a church, and so I would love to do that for one more time if you guys would be willing. Let's, let's do that. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I'll start, and you guys follow in. <coughs> He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body. Amen. Thank you, guys. In the 8th century BC, a prophet by the name of Isaiah addressed the peoples of Judah and Israel who were in the middle of open rebellion against God. And this was a, a tragic uh, rebellion that both Judah and Israel were participating in. They had abandoned God and they had gone after other deities. And um, they had, in the process, gotten caught up in all kinds of idolatry, even the horrific and tragic sacrifice of their own children. And Isaiah spends a lot of his time 
in the text telling them that if they don't turn and repent, God is going to come and he's going to come to them with great wrath. And he'll wipe out everything that they have because they've dishonored him and they've broken their covenant with him. And no doubt Isaiah had concern for much of his life that God would completely wipe them out, that God would erase them from the earth because of their sin. He knew, Isaiah knew, that this would have been just. And God tells him, though, I won't cut them off. He says, I promise I will never completely cut them off. Why not? He answers it in Isaiah 48. Listen to the words of God. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. Why does God defer his anger here? For the sake of his name. Why does God restrain his wrath against his people? For the sake of his praise. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? God had tethered himself to his people to such a degree he had wrapped himself around her as a bride, clothed her with his own righteousness, that her actions, of course, affected his reputation, but even more so, how he responded to her would even more greatly affect his reputation. The nations were watching. What would the Hebrew God do with his people? Would he protect his bride, or would he bring ruin to her just ruin for her transgressions? And the answer, of course, is that he will protect her, ultimately, because his glory is on the line. His glory is at stake. My glory, God says, as he restrains his justice, I will not give to another. And so our goal today in Colossians 1.18, believe it or not, <laughs> um, is, is answering the question, why does God refuse to give his glory to another? What's so special about God's glory? What is God's glory? What is the nature of God's glory? And why is he so focused on protecting and displaying it? Why would he even suspend or remove his divine justice in order to protect the glory of his name? Colossians 1.18 actually tells us the reason. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that Christ Jesus in all things might be preeminent. And preeminent here means that he is first, he is primary, he is ultimate. Now Paul ties this phrase to Christ, and he says, first, Christ is the head of the body, the church. He says that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that these two realities are crowning achievements in finalizing the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to those 
uh, before our time is up today. But what I want to do today, well, actually, let's, let's, let's talk about this for a second. Last week, we talked about how Christ's preeminence actually means two things. There's two distinct things that are very interwoven that the preeminence of Christ means. One of them we talked about last week is that Jesus Christ is the purpose of all things, that all human history, all redemptive history, all created history, everything that's ever happened, happens because it's pointing to him. Christ is the reason for everything that exists. He's the ultimate reason of all things, all reality. But the other side to that coin, and this is where we'll turn to this week, is that he's not only the purpose of all things, but he is the greatest of all things. He is the apex, the highest part of reality. He is the most supreme aspect of all existence. There's nothing grander than him, nothing more beautiful than him, nothing more worthy of praise than him. And that fact about the preeminence of Christ is deeply connected to the glory of God that we just saw in Isaiah 48. God's pursuit and protection of his name and his praise and his glory is the same thing as him lifting up Christ Jesus and saying, my son is preeminent and the greatest of all things. And so God's glory is really important to us today as we go through Colossians, and it is the greatest thing that we could talk about or spend any time about today. Now, here's the sobering part about all this. You can know about God's glory intellectually. You can know about it mentally. You can understand it and have it locked up as a fact in the list of things that you desire to believe. And you can never know the weight of it at the same time. You can never know the fullness of it at the same time. So a question that should govern our thoughts as we look at this today is, how often do I personally consider God's glory during the course of the day? How often do I actively pursue his fame in everything that I do and think and say? Or is he just something I get to when I've got time? My hope and prayer is that today all of us, myself especially, would feel the immense greatness of God in this text and that it wouldn't just simply be an intellectual assent to a fact. It is a fact, whether we believe it or not, but it would be a reality that our heart climbs up to and that we are completely consumed by. Several years ago, I was sitting at my desk at work, and sometimes I do stuff that um, allows me to listen to things and, and watch things that aren't directly related to my work, and I was listening to a sermon and something happened that changed literally everything for me. All that I had believed about God, all of my theology, all the things that I had worked out of my head, over the course of 50 minutes, was obliterated, as though it was hit by like a semi-truck going 100 miles an hour. My mouth dried up. This is at work in front of my peers. My throat sealed up. I, I was weeping. I had to go some other place. And I, with quivering lips, repented of a very small view of the living God. My entire paradigm and understanding of who God was had been, in that moment, violently shaken up. 
And for the first time in my entire life, I saw something that I'd never seen before. I saw the supremacy, the absolute supremacy of the glory of God, and I saw his undying passion to pursue it. I saw his passion to pursue his own glory, and I realized when I saw it clearly for what it was that his passion had become the center of my life, that my life would never be the same again, and that it would completely be different, and that he would be the anchor of everything for me, and I haven't been the same again. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is the center of reality. This is the center of existence. Literally nothing more important or critical to understand. The single greatest need for every human being today in this building, outside this building, is for us to feel the weight of that verse. And I promise it'll eventually get us back to Colossians 1.18. But if we feel the weight of this thing, our lives will change. It will be a Copernican revolution for us. But first, we need to press further in this concept of the glory of God just to see it more clearly. So let's turn to Isaiah 6. You've got your Bibles, and I hope you do. We'll be spending a, a good chunk of our time there today. Isaiah 6. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet to Judah and Israel. And he's first sent by God here, from this text, to the people. And it comes in the form of a theophany, an encounter with the living God. It says here that, it happened in the year that King Uzziah died. He says, I saw in that year the Lord. I saw God himself, and he was sitting on a throne. So there's a contrast here right off the bat. The king on the earth is dead. The king in heaven is very much, very much alive. And he will always be alive because he never came into being and he will never go out of being. This king is eternal and everything else and everyone else that exists in all of time and space combined is in comparison to him infinitely contingent and ephemeral and passing away. The king on the throne in this vision is alive. And he's not alive for nothing. 
It says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. So this king is alive and he reigns forever. His reign will never cease. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 knew this very well. Took him a while to figure it out, but when he did, he says these words. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is the Lord and the King that we see in Isaiah 6. None can stay his hand. None can say to him, what have you done? He is supreme, completely supreme in authority. He reigns over everything. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 puts it this way. I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Lord in Isaiah 6 is sovereign and supreme over all things. He is God, and there is no other. His counsel shall stand. Nothing will defy his counsel, and his purpose will always be accomplished without exception. And so when Isaiah describes the Lord, he sees on this throne, he's taken back by his supremacy, by his power, by his glory. And he says, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now what does he mean? Does he mean that God was wearing clothing? Does he mean that God was wearing a robe? Or does he mean something more? course, it means something more. Psalm 93 says that the train of God's robe is his majesty, his resplendent beauty and glory, his excellence. And it is, in Isaiah's eyes, overwhelming. It is completely captivating. He is taken aback by his absolute radiance and his splendor. This God and king is too great for him to bear, too great for his senses to perceive rightly, because it's too great for anyone to bear. Exodus 33 tells us as much. Let me read you the story about Moses' encounter with God. Moses is pleading with God to show him his glory. This is the encounter. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, God, said back to Moses, I will make my, all of my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall, you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
The Lord says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And then he hides Moses in the cleft so that Moses can only get a glimpse of who he is and therefore live. That's an amazing and remarkable thing. You cannot see, according to this text, the face of the living God, which begs the question, doesn't it? How exactly is Isaiah 6 happening? How is Isaiah seeing all that's going on here? Well, the next thing in Isaiah's vision is he sees the seraphim, these majestic angelic beings. The name literally means burning ones. And so you can imagine, if you can conceive of them with your mind's eye, these are utterly radiant beings. They are bright. They are brilliant. And this is the only place in the entire um, council of Scripture where we see these beings described. We see these beings at all mentioned. Only here. This is it. But their depiction is very clear. They're majestic. And Isaiah is no doubt in awe of them, and I would say, based on the description of them in this text, it's very clear that if we were to see them right now, we would be tempted to worship them. What are they doing exactly in this text, though? Isaiah explains. He says, they have each of them six wings. Two of them they use to fly, and two they use to cover their face, and two they use to cover their feet, which is a very strange way to describe these beings. Why would they cover their feet? Why would they cover their face? Here's why. Though they are sinless creatures and though they are majestic and radiant beings who dwell in the very presence of God, they are, to be quite frank, ashamed of their creaturely faces and their creaturely feet because they recognize that this God is infinitely more glorious than they could ever be. They don't even want to show him their face or their feet or even allow his radiance to shine against it. It is too much. They know who he is and he is far too great for that to happen. They cannot allow their mere faces and feet to dishonor him by being visible in his presence and therefore they cover them. They cover them. Now, what are they doing while they, while they fly here? They, it says that they're calling out to each other. They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is their purpose as far as we can tell. They aren't described doing anything else in this text or anywhere else in the Bible. Their job explicitly is to shout this statement to each other. That's why they exist here, specifically to worship God in his presence. And the reason that this is in Isaiah 6 is to tell us, to tell Isaiah, to tell us who are reading it afterwards, that this God who's on the throne will never be ignored. He will always, always, always have worshipers. Let every man be a liar and a thief. This God, this God will still be honored and treasured as God. And he will be honored and treasured by unimaginably glorious and powerful creatures. And we know that they're powerful because when they said this statement, when they spoke, it says the threshold of the temple shook. The decibel level 
of the statement and the boldness with which they said it shattered reality and caused the temple of the living God to tremble. And it says the house was filled with smoke, with this radiance of God's presence. But why did they say these words? Why did they say this statement? What's important about them saying this specifically? Why didn't they say something else? What did they say? They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord. Now this Lord is in all caps. So we know that it's not simply Adonai in the Hebrew, which would mean master. This Lord is actually the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. It's the Tetragrammaton. And it's what God declared to Moses in that text we just read from Exodus 33 just a few minutes ago. He says, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And it comes from earlier in the story of Exodus when Moses goes to God and he says, what shall I tell them your name is? What shall I tell the people of Israel your name is? And he says, tell them I am that I am. I am Yahweh, absolute reality. And so the seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Now, what, what do they mean by saying holy? Why use that word? And they say it three times. Holiness can mean, and for most of us, this is what it means, moral perfection or righteousness. But in the Hebrew text, the word holy actually means to be set apart, to be separated, to sanctify something, to make it holy, is to set it apart for God. And that's what it means to be holy here. That's what it means to make something holy. So why are the seraphim saying this about God himself? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If it means to be set apart for God, that's a really interesting way. Are they, are they putting God, to setting him apart for himself or something else? They're saying this because God exists exclusively in a category of his own. He is intrinsically and utterly set apart for himself in every imaginable way. This God that Isaiah sees is completely distinct from everything else that exists, period. There isn't anything like him. He is in a class of his own. He is in a category without equal. He is unrivaled in everything. He is distinct. He is other which is, of course, what it means for him to be the great I am. His very name says, I am the only ultimate self-sufficient being in the universe. There is nothing like me. Nothing. And so for the seraphim, that's what it means for them to call him Yahweh. That's what it means for them to call him holy. They're ascribing to him the essence of his name. You are completely and comprehensively other Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then they say, the whole earth is full of your glory. So what is it about God's holiness in the first statement that is connected to the entire earth being filled with his glory? Why connect these two? What are the seraphim trying to say about this God? Now, we said God's holiness is his intrinsic otherness, his absolute distinction from everything else that exists. And we know he isn't just set apart for something else. He is the something else that all things that are set apart are set apart for. 
And therefore, God's glory must be, in this text, the public display of that other otherness. His glory is the consummate display of his holiness. His greatness and his majesty and all the perfections of who he is, when they radiate from him, when they are displayed publicly, that is called glory. So Isaiah can say that because the Lord is so holy, because the Lord is holy, 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 therefore this earth will be filled with his glory to the brim. But it's at this point in the story that Isaiah realizes that he's in trouble, that he's in deep trouble. And he says these words, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, my eyes, have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's scared for his life. And it is right for him to think this way because God's glory should obliterate him upon seeing it. That's what we just read in Exodus 33. It says, For man shall not see me and live. And why is that? Isaiah's told us he's a sinner. He has unclean lips. He's guilty before God, like we are. And so he says before the holy God, Woe is me, for I am lost. And it's a, when we look at a statement like this, it is a terrible thing to realize that those words, woe is me for I am lost, will be words that many people say when they see God for the first time. And those words will usher in the end of their story. But that's not the end of Isaiah's story. So let's continue reading. Verse 6 says this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So one of the seraphim takes a burning coal with tongs from the altar and he presses it against Isaiah's unclean lips. And then he tells him what he did. He says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And like that, Isaiah is alive. He remains alive. He doesn't die in the presence of Almighty God. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. In order for Isaiah to remain in the presence of God, his sins had to be paid for. His guilt had to be completely removed. And the coal here somehow accomplishes it. Somehow the coal removes his guilt and his sin. How is that possible? Why, why use a coal to depict this reality? Well, the coal was taken from the altar. And the altar is where the sacrifice occurs. Leviticus 1. He shall lay his hand on the head of, a burnt, of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. 
The altar is where the offering is made and it's where atonement is procured. So don't miss this. If we, if we skim over this, we're going to miss something important. Isaiah should be dead here. He should be dead. But he has remained alive. So for Isaiah, it is very clear at this point that the pathway into the presence of Almighty God and into the presence of his glory is through one thing alone, the grace of Almighty God. It's through God's grace. God didn't need to have the coal brought to him. Nothing was pressuring God to do that. Nothing was forcing him to do that. Isaiah didn't have anything to commend himself to God at all. And he acknowledges it openly here. Nothing in that man demanded it to happen, but God, by his grace alone, by his powerful grace, does it. And so the biggest question we have today, and the biggest question we have when we consider Colossians 1.18, which we'll be getting to in a second, is if we've seen, if we've really seen the glory of God in Isaiah 6, and it's something that we desire, like Isaiah, to live and bask in, if that's our experience, where do we find this burning coal? Where do we get this burning coal? Where do we sinners who are lost, just like Isaiah, find an atoning offering? And the answer to that question is in Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For us, Christ Jesus is that coal. He is that offering. And because he is so infinitely worthy, because he is preeminent and glorious, there was no need for multiple offerings. There was no need for a service at the altar. Only one offering was needed. And this wasn't just an attempt to atone for our sin, an effort to atone for our sin that we can mess up. This was a guaranteed atonement for every single sin that we've ever committed and ever will commit for those who trust in Christ Jesus. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time, all time, those who are being sanctified. So now we head back into Colossians 1.18. So who are those being sanctified? Who are the people that are sanctified here? Colossians 1.18 says it's those who are in Christ. It is the body of Christ Jesus, the church, and he is the head of the body. And everything he secures through his own offering of his body, his physical, his physical body, he secures for every single human being in the church. Every human being that is a part of his body, no one is left out. And the atonement he secures isn't just for Isaiah. It's not just for me. It's not just for you. It's for every single human being who trusts and believe in Christ Jesus who've put their confidence completely in him. And he has become their altar. He has become their lamb offering. And the altar of sacrifice for him was a Roman cross. And this lamb died and was buried. No question about it. No historian will agree with you. That man died and he was buried. But our book tells us that three days later, all of that changed. And for the first time in human history, a man rose from the dead never to die again, ever. And so Christ in that moment is now the firstborn from the dead. He is the fountain of eternal life. 
For those who trust in him, they will never, ever see death. And now Christ, the lamb, is at the right hand of God so that in everything he might be preeminent. You see, the preeminence of Jesus Christ isn't something different from the glory we just saw in Isaiah 6 in the throne room. It was exactly what Isaiah saw. When he was in the throne room with God, he was seeing the preeminence of Christ Jesus. The glory proclaimed by the seraphim there wasn't a different kind of glory. It was the glory of Jesus Christ. It was the supremacy of Christ that Isaiah saw 700 years before that man even walked on the earth. John 12, 41, talking specifically about the vision in Isaiah 6, says this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Spoke of who? Christ Jesus. Isaiah saw the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, and he spoke of him. And that glory in in the book of John fills the earth through the ministry of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in Isaiah 6 and the preeminence of Christ in Colossians 1 are the exact same thing. And why is that? It's because Jesus Christ is the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. In Christ, the holiness of God, the intrinsic holiness of God is displayed, and it is displayed for the, all the world to see. It's displayed and made public. That holiness, his glory, is displayed and nailed to a cross so that the pinnacle of God's glory can be seen very clearly. And here's the pinnacle of his glory. Here's the apex of God's glory, the point at which God's glory is the highest. It is God's glory being the grace and the mercy and the love that he has for sinners like us. That's the height of his glory. There's nothing higher there's nothing higher than God's grace, God's love for us. And it's personified in the man of Jesus Christ. We need to feel the magnitude of the cross. We need to feel it. We need to feel the magnitude of the gospel. And the only way we can feel the magnitude of the gospel is if we recognize the infinite distance between that God and us. Closing that gap diminishes the beauty of the cross because it's not objectively true and because it, it, it conceals his glory. All that we have here, this world, the solar system, and uncountable stars that populate the night sky that represent trillions upon trillions of galaxies potentially that inhabit this cosmos, they are next to the glory of God, infinitely nothing. They are a drop in the bucket an acorn next to a supernova. Isaiah 40 says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he, God, takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. So God is actually that glorious. And until you feel that, you will not know the full beauty of the cross. You won't know it. You won't be able to enjoy it at its fullest. That, that because of, that despite 
the infinite distance between us and be, despite his infinite greatness, he still sent his son to come and rescue us, to redeem us, that he loves us and desires for us to be with him. But to what end? What's the purpose ultimately for that? Isaiah 48, remember? For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not get, give to another. I think we're tempted oftentimes to look at a text like this and contemplate God's pursuit of his own glory as a bad thing. That it is a bad thing for him to pursue his own glory because, to be quite honest, it would be a bad thing for us to pursue our own glory. And so we ascribe that paradigm to God and we say, God pursuing his own glory, a bad thing. As though he isn't actually that worthy. Or maybe he should just pursue something less glorious than himself. But it's not bad news. It's not bad news at all. It's the best news in the world that God pursues his own glory. Because his pursuit of his own glory and his own praise is his pursuit of our highest possible joy. There is no joy higher than enjoying him for who he is. When God says, my glory I will not give to another, he's saying, I refuse I refuse to let my people, my sanctified body, settle for anything less than the highest and greatest joy imaginable. Namely, Him. The presence of the living God. God desires for us to be, for us human beings, to be in ever-increasing pleasure in His throne room for all eternity. Not just a momentary vision like Isaiah had, but forever to experience levels of joy that this world, the one we have now, cannot possibly fathom. It doesn't even have words to describe. That's what's waiting for us. That's what God desires for us. In a few moments, we'll be worshiping and partaking in communion. If you trust in Christ, if you trust in the offering of this lamb on your behalf, this atonement, please join us for communion. You are the table's open for you. But before we do that, I want to close again this week with another passage from Revelation. I did this last week, and I think it's helpful for us to go one last time back into the throne room where Isaiah was, this time looking through a different text. And I want us, all of us, to know that this hope isn't just an idea or concept that floats out here. This is a reality for us, a future reality that is guaranteed and that is certain. Here's the text. Then one of the elders said to me, addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray.
God, it is so difficult for us to, to believe that, that passage. Everything in our flesh tells us it ain't true. Everything in our bodies desires for us to soak up the pleasures in this life because we're not quite certain at some subconscious level that that other life is really what it's all cracked up to be. But Father, we need you in our worship and communion, Father, in just contemplating the greatness of Isaiah 6. We need to know that this is a guaranteed reality for every single human being who trusts and believes Christ Jesus in his sacrifice, in his work on the cross. And Father, in order for us to feel the weight of it, the joy, the, the transcendent joy of the gospel, we need to recognize the magnitude of the delta between a supremely, infinitely holy God and creatures who love to get glory for themselves. The chasm between us is great, and it was crossed by one man, the God-man, Christ Jesus, when he came for us. Father, may the weight of that, the reality of that, the joy found only in that be ours. And may we have a certain and confident and sure foundation that because of what was accomplished on the cross, not anything we contribute to it, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, we are his forever, and we will enjoy ever-increasing joy and pleasure for eternity in the presence of Almighty God in that same throne room that Isaiah found himself in almost 3,000 years ago. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.